Greetings and salutations. You are listening to the Into the North podcast, where we take a look at the competitive side of the Commander format, also known as CDH. I'm one of your hosts, Lyndon, aka Noobzors, and today I'm joined by my co-hosts, Reed, aka Sick Robot. Howdy. And Morgan, aka Spleenface. How's it going? And in this episode, we'll be covering how to navigate the stack. Basically what to do when you've got, you know, a four-way Baral mirror. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, well, no, because Baral doesn't run removal, and removal actually sort of factors into this one. So. <laughs> hey, there's bounce and steel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> reshape. A single reshape. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, resculpt? Oh, did I even... Oh, God, I forgot what yeah, the was Oh, no. <laughs> actually, never mind. Never mind. I'm, never, I'm, I'm, go- I'm running that one back. Uh, this is. I'm pitting this blade on Baral because that card's unplayable, and you're making me remember it. Okay, that card, that card is. I, I play that card in way too many decks because when you don't have like, uh, when you don't have like a decay and trophy and stuff like that, you're you gotta yeah, do what you gotta do. Yeah. Um, cool. But yeah, before we get into that, what have you guys been up to since the last episode? Because last time we recorded all, all three together. of us together, uh, turns out I think it was year in review, right? And then if we're counting like actual podcasts, like it's. Probably. God, is it like creepy about half a year or something? Would have been more than that, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, we were on a, yeah. a hiatus for a few months before that. And yeah, so it's been a, it's been a while since we've done like a regular episode. Uh, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, yeah, so obviously we did year in review and then um, basically I, I kind of like a last minute uh, trip to, to Europe visiting my dad and then we tried to get some stuff recorded before that. So then we did, me and Morgan did an episode. Um, but then, uh, yeah, it's been, been a minute. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, that's part of what I was doing. <laughs> Traveling, I guess. So, uh, and sense. I've been getting back into, after the hiatus, uh, you know, really actually delving back into magic a lot, CDH, doing lots of brewing, having lots of fun, playing games again. You know, sometimes you just need a break to, find your love of the format again and that's okay i've just been yeah. uh i've just been engaging with the community and i've been <laughs> i'm so sorry yeah, i'm so sorry <laughs> i mean we're not gonna get into that one but uh this one's for the people who are already in the know i guess <laughs> yeah um anything from you reed i uh yeah i said uh i said a few months ago at this point that i was uh getting back on the horse and getting back to the community and then i promptly like re-left the community and got addicted to smash again so. <laughs> <laughs> i mean i've been playing a lot of melee the uh local community scenes is thriving so you know it's fun <laughs> but, yeah yeah you've also think, been playing uh, you played a bit of blue farm i only got to play against you on blue farm once i i literally put together blue farm just to like reorient myself with it okay actually I'll, uh, this is actually a pretty good story i feel like with a pretty decent um resulting uh whatever resulting uh lesson which is that i realized that i uh needed to brush up on blue farm play patterns a bit um mostly because like everybody that we play with refuses to play crom in any way shape yeah. or form and not out of like any disdain for it i don't think just like because like people just like it's not the decks that interest anybody yeah. <laughs> that we tend to play with and like it's a play group of like 20 to 25 people in terms of like extended play groups and just like nobody plays crom um so I was just like, yeah, I need to like reorient myself with this deck and just like how it functions and stuff like that so I don't have to like 
either look for like specific practice or just like run into it in tournaments um while being rusty and then i realized that nobody plays it so i was like well i guess i'll just play with farm then and i'll do it myself um and i sort of had this sense going into it you know like you haven't when you haven't seen a deck for a while, you're just like, oh, I wonder, like, if it's any different or, like, if the developments of, like, play patterns over the past, like, year or so have really, like, meaningfully changed it or whatever. Because, like, you know, I've played Blue Farm before. I wasn't, like, a huge fan of playing it at the time. I didn't think it was a huge amount of fun. But I was like, you know, maybe, like, Brian Cook's in immense changes to the uh, play style and, like, mulligan decisions Brian of Koval. playing. Uh, Koval, yeah. Oh, Brian Cook Brian does Rogsai. Yeah. No, I know. I was talking about Brian Cook. Like, sorry. I was talking about like brian cook's like always mulliganing for like rustic study and fish and like mulligan decisions and stuff like that um i was thinking like oh like maybe maybe this has sort of like changed how these decks actually end up playing and then i played like four games of it i was like this is the exact same as as it was like two years ago this sucks i hate this (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so maybe that's a better strategy when steel enchantment is just a non-card in uh (laughs) (laughs) another <laughs> <laughs> metas honestly honestly it, it would be hilarious if steel enchantment becomes legit anti-turbo tech just because they're always mulliganing for a turn one yeah. study. <laughs> it's just like either i'm dying before i could cast this or it's just like the best possible card in all of these games yeah oh dude i mean worst case scenario just pitches pitches to mis- misdirection <laughs> yeah, force exactly. of will force of negation <laughs> best case scenario it's remove a risk study and make your own it's just for two mana insane excellent do you want to tell the story of uh, the steel enchantment? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first game I played against Reed on Blue Farm. I think he drops a turn one. Was it turn one? You know, it, it wasn't me. I wasn't even involved in it, but I was just there, like playing Blue Farm to witness. Oh no, it was Zach. Yeah, it was yeah. it was Zach's Ristic study, yeah. right? Yeah, and then um, our friend Tim uh, steel enchantments the Ristic study, and then I steel enchanted it again. Um, and then actually, so the the funny part about it was we had to stop Legend and be like, okay, you're casting the Steel Enchantment, what are you targeting with it? Because there's a Steel Enchantment and there's a Rhystic Study. Um, yeah, so I I ended up making, I think it was the right call in the end, which was to take the Rhystic Study, because that way, if they remove my Steel Enchantment... Um, or like like Tim, I think because Tim was in Azorius, which means it's hard for him to kind of single target remove something. So then, um, this incentive is to kind of remove the Ristic study instead of just giving the Ristic study back to someone else. I think was yeah. the reasoning. Uh, um, and also, yeah. you can't, you couldn't, he couldn't psychrift back his own. Like he he couldn't have psychrifted back his own steel enchantment because you don't like he still controlled his own steel enchantment you just yeah overrode yeah. it with your own and i think it actually ended up mattering later in the game too and we were just like incredibly surprised that it did so yeah i mean that's that was one it's it's kind of rare when you run into situations or i mean one like i don't think i've ever run into that double steel enchantmenting something or it's been a long time since i have man you, you it's sometimes you have to you know shake off the rust in those kind of situations you're like oh god i have to actually think about how to target things again you you also just play like the worst possible collection of decks for like shaking off rust yes (laughs) none of them them are good and none of them can end the game quickly so they and 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 that stacked on top of the actual strategies that you play just end up having like yeah all my decisions matter and they add it adds up across the course of the game it's super familiar with everything that you're playing with to make like the good decisions yeah it's just like so bad and it forces hope i mean part of the idea is that it hopefully forces me to just get better 
Sometimes that's true. I mean, I need, that's why I need to go back to Brawl. I need to play more games with Brawl. I took a, I got a lot better last time I played Brawl for an extended nobody, stint. Nobody has ever said, said that sentence ever. <laughs> I need to go back to Brawl. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's the control equivalent of hitting the gym. You know, it's, uh, you, it's such it's a bad not, deck that you have not, to. You have to just maximize every decision. You have to maximize Paul. You have to maximize everything just to eke out wins. So it's, it's uh, pretty good. Doing like active, just like resistance training. That was like that. It's like incredibly close to just like hurting yourself. Oh, I, I think of it when it. I play Baral as like in when Rock Lee fights Gara and he drops. I, d- the- I, I, I fucking I knew it. I yeah, knew dude, I make I say this all the time. Yeah, <laughs> when, when playing Brawl is like with the freaking insanely heavy weights, and then once you once you like stop playing Brawl and you you played it for like the past several months, you've gotten tons of games in. You you just like pff, you're free from your shackles and you're so much better. Uh, Except like. You, the- Again, the decks that you play, you're like not actually dropping all the weights. You're dropping like oh yeah, no, no, no. And then you're just like, <laughs> you're, you, you just refuse to acknowledge that you're still wearing leg weights. Well, the thing is, if I if I was to drop all the weights, I'd be so uncoordinated that I would just probably hit myself in confusion. <laughs> yeah, just knock yourself out, jump into the ceiling. Yeah, if I play head. a deck that's too good, I just I won't know what to do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's kind of what we've been doing. Um. So yeah, without further ado, let's jump into housekeeping. Um, and as always in housekeeping, we'd like to give a shout out to our new patrons. Um, new patron this week is Alphonse D. Um, so yeah, big thank you to yeah, Alphonse wrong. D for uh, being a Patreon and or being a patron and supporting the podcast. Thank you so much. Oh my God, he's actually fixing it. <laughs> I fixed it years ago, or like no, you <laughs> didn't. <laughs> It's not like we have recordings or anything, but whatever. Um, okay, so yeah, that's housekeeping. New developments. Um, Morgan Reed, you guys can share this one. Yeah, we're uh, we're going to. Is it called MagicCon? Whatever. The thing in Minneapolis, I, dude. I don't May, know. <laughs> on May sixth ish. Yeah. yeah. That's that's fifth as seven, good as I got. Fifth to eighth, something like that. Fifth to seventh. Yeah. Fifth, fifth to eighth, or fifth to seventh. Yeah. There we go. Uh, we're gonna be in Minneapolis. There's gonna be a bunch of other people who play CDH there, and most of them are cool people. And you know, some have described us as cool people. So, you know, <laughs> well, if if, if it's if it's within your means, despite you despite your guys' best efforts to prove otherwise, you know, it's still they still give you that. <laughs> so, so. <I'm> <laughs> yeah. I, oh, to be clear, I was not saying I agreed with that characterization. Yeah. It has, <laughs> but it has many been people. Made. Many people say that me and Morgan are good people. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, un, um, unverified sources. It's uh. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. So that that sounds like it sounds like it'll be fun. Bund can't yeah. make it because I'm uh kind of i've got like this i don't have a massive travel budget this year and i've got like this flight voucher that i'm saving so hopefully uh because i want to save it for like a larger uh, meetup with some of the people on the the frog I, server hopefully if there's like a big uh big event so i think we'll unfortunately see. i think minneapolis is actually going to be like one of the bigger ones um this year but 
not for the frog server, which sort of sucks. Yeah, so, yeah. We'll see if we can figure We've out. We've been trying way. to. There was a whole. I mean, I mean, we don't have to get into it, but like there was a whole that old GP Toronto thing that was like pre-COVID. I, There's dude, been rip, <laughs> rip GP Toronto. That was gonna be like uh, the most stacked. I know. GP for CDH of all time. Actually tragic, but yeah, we've been trying to trying to get something together for you know like oh let's all go to this one and it just doesn't work out. So hopefully something this year, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, uh, without further ado, let's jump into the actual topic, which is navigating the stack. Um, so yeah, why why bother talking about the stack, guys? Who cares? It's just it's about it's just a... playing permanence. Not you know play play a grand abolisher and you know never interact on the stack ever. Just play everything at sorcery exactly. speed. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Play, uh, is there? Yeah, just everybody has a defense grid in play. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Just, isn't that play isn't City that, of Solitude? Let's go. Well, the the end goal of CDH is to get it to a point where everybody just plays as if there's a defense grid in play already, so you can just cut all your defense grids and grant abolishers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just the is perfect the perfect goal? metagame. Yeah, but yeah. So exactly. I was not aware that that was the end goal, but I'm uh, I'm excited for. <laughs> well, now you are aware, and that might color <laughs> your understanding of uh, meta developments over the past couple of years. <laughs> yep. Anyway. Yep. Yeah. And in in all seriousness, I think you know, there's a, you know, we were having a super long discussion pre-show about like um, competitiveness and player agency and all these things back and forth and. Um, you know, one of the things where, you know, you have the most player agency in a game um, tends to actually be, I think, on the stack. We're, we're like very subtle, you know, it's not just the difference, but the binary difference between casting a spell and not. Um, I mean, obviously there is that, but there is so much more that you can kind of get out of it. Um, and there it's, you know, a large portion of the game and a lot of, you know, almost every key CDH game uh, or key moment in a CDH game is decided um by some exchange on the stack like realistically um it sometimes happens that someone can slam an abolisher and then kind of blank everyone else's interaction but um but, I mean, there's usually a fight over the abolisher there's too, if, so if like, people can there's a fight over the abolisher or you know what the abolisher is doing is basically removing the agency that other people would have had because they had you know all this mm-hmm. interaction sand sandbagged and you know most decks of cdh that have blue in them they're like massively um massive amount of instance right compared to other uh um card types so yeah turns out that the stack is actually um an area where you can kind of really eke out a lot of advantage and so we're gonna hopefully kind of go into how to understand that and you know leverage it and you know come out (laughs) come out the other side as uh (laughs) As best as possible, yeah. yeah. As far think, as possible. This is definitely... I think uh, this is probably in the uh, second largest category of um, of Into the North episodes, where, like, the first category is uh, just the list episodes. And I think uh, this one's going to be part of the second largest category, which is the uh, tips and tricks episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I think we're just going to get into a lot of, uh, just, like, small interaction sequencing things that uh, end up all stacking together to... Uh, really making like a pretty big difference in how you actually play the game 
Yeah, so I mean, it's not, we've got a bit of a, a structure to this, but it's a bit loose, so it's kind of going to be maybe a bit just like, you know, abstract kind of scattershot approach where we're just going to bombard you with some kind of ideas and discussions and topics about the stack and hopefully you t- take away something that's uh, that's good <laughs> from that. Solution is left to the listener. Yeah, so the kind of first aspect of just like understanding the stack um we're going to assume that you have operational knowledge of the basic kind of rules of magic, but we wanted to kind of reinforce without giving like a full detailed primer on how these things work of just certain concepts that you should be aware of and look more into if you're not familiar with, because knowing how these work and just the actual rules of the game allows you to, um, you know, eke out small percentage points or, you know, actually just understand how people are interacting and how the game is unfolding so some things we have here are app nap so active player non-active player so that's to do with um who has priority and in, in response to um and how triggers stack well, it, yeah. yeah it's it's how you put triggers onto the stack that like trigger off of the same thing happening um so it's like uh actually can be like pretty relevant a lot of the time and i think uh a lot of people get lazy about app nap, especially during, um, like, you'll, you'll put a bunch of triggers on a stack or, like, cast a bunch of spells in sequence with, like, some rustic sites or whatever on the board. And then somebody will stop and be like, okay, whoa, 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 I need to, like, do something at, like, this very specific point in time or, like, at this very specific timing. And by the time that you've gotten to that point, it's like, oh, we didn't actually, like, go through and figure out how the triggers were being put on the stack and that's probably going to matter now yeah the um, fact that you might be drawing a card off of Ristic study before someone else um yeah. before someone else's Ristic study or, or remora that matters that yeah. matters a lot that that seeing one extra card sooner you know you draw a counter spell before they do like that that can matter a lot so so yeah, yeah. Just, just as a reminder for like active player non-active player what that does mean is that like so say your turn player with the uh with a Rhystic Study in play, and the person to your right, so the person who's currently, like, last in turn order also has a Rhystic Study in play. If uh, somebody else at the table uh, casts a spell, um, your trigger is going to go on the stack um, before the person, like, the last person's trigger will go on the stack, which means that theirs is going to resolve first in that scenario. Um, So you just have to, you have to be aware of, like, what order stuff goes in the stack in there. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Um, we also have kind of how priority works in mana bullying. Morgan, you can talk about that if you want. So, um, there's a couple, I mean, again, we're assuming you understand how things work generally in Magic. Um, a couple things that sort of behave a little differently in multiplayer are, um, first of all, it's the top element of the stack resolves when all players pass without taking any actions. Uh, actions are very broadly defined in magic um including uh tapping lands is technically an action um so you can wind up with some odd sequences where like player a casts a spell they're the active player and then uh you know player let's say player c like taps a land then theoretically the last person to pass is going to be uh player b because player c will pass then D, then back to A, and then B again. Um, and so that can be used to sort of give people second chances to interact. Um, and the other part where this comes up is um, when people are playing on other people's turns and there are triggers or multiple things on the stack, um, 
priority will return to the active player when anything resolves, which means, let's say it's player A's turn, player C tries to cast a removal spell, whatever. Um, normally, priority would pass, D passes, A passes, B passes, and then it resolves. But if there is something like a Ristic Study, the Ristic Study, you'll do the same thing. D passes, A passes, B passes, it resolves. And now A has priority, so it'll actually be D who's the last person to pass on it. Wait, so those are wait, sort of like the yeah. two... I would say those are the two like most common edge casey scenarios uh, that you'll see in CDH games. Um, that second one is like still super important to like actually remember though because it happens a lot more often than like you probably realize and it like can make a large amount of difference especially for stuff that we're going to talk about later. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, uh, if you want to, you know, learn more i mean we did i said we weren't going to do many primers and we kind of did so <laughs> hopefully you guys found that helpful um but yeah if, if you want to learn more definitely suggest you know being becoming intimately familiar with uh, all the rules of priority and uh you know how triggers are stacked and whatnot um so yes kind of next up and we we kind of add this late but really i think it is the kind of key thing going into um any sort of stack battle or whatever and that's just knowing what you're trying to achieve like what are your goals going into any um stack fight so and that could even go you no know, maybe you know i'm talking about a stack fight in terms of like someone else casts a spell and maybe there's a counter spell already and they fight back it's like well do i jump in now like it could be like that or it could even just be i'm gonna cast a spell how much am i willing to commit to protect this um, with the current resources I have in hand sort of thing. Just knowing what your what your plan is um, beforehand, kind of using that assessment um, really helps, especially because, you know, something that we, uh, is, a, is a point that we have a bit later on, which is like uh, the sunk cost fallacy, right? And, and cutting your losses early. It can get, it can be hard once you've like started to, uh, to play a spell, you know, you, you some kind of value engine, you're like, ah, okay, I'll, I'll defend this with the first thing. And then someone throws something else at it, and you're like, man, I've got like a couple more counter spells. And do I just keep going? I, am I, am I too far in at this point? You know, when you kind of assess beforehand, what you really want, um, you know, how, how many counter spells you're actually going to devote to protecting it, that can, uh, that can help you avoid kind of falling into those pitfalls. Um, so yeah, have a clear kind of set of defined goals of what you're trying to achieve. Anyone want to add anything to that? No, nope. only just say that that's like also just the case that like a lot of playing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, CH slash games in general is just like you know, try to have a game plan before <laughs> actually executing on like game actions. Yeah, uh, don't don't take the first legal game action you can. You know, that's not, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's that's you gotta have a bit usually, more nuance to it than that. Usually not the best thing to be doing. Um, but yeah, so given given you know, assuming you're, you're going in with a goal, um, depending on what the goal is, these different um, tips and tricks can be applied differently. So our next kind of point is, and this is kind of like the last big picture point, um, is breaking down the elements of the stack and, and how you're interacting with the stack into, or the things that would factor into your decision-making into two key um, categories. That would be timing and sequencing. And uh, I'll let you guys kind of talk about those more if you want. Sure. So I guess uh, we'll, we'll start with timing. 
which is uh, essentially, you know, trying to leverage the fact that it is a multiplayer format and other uh, people are going to be taking actions and some of those actions are, you know, more or less predictable. Um, and, you know, through a, a bunch of different trip, uh, tricks that we'll get into sort of uh, in more detail, uh, you want to be sort of maximizing, you know, once you've picked the goal that we outlined in, in the last step, uh, you can sort of try and maximize that goal, um, whether it's you want to be drawing interaction out of your opponents or, you know, you're worried about uh, something like if, if this turns into a big stack fight, you know, that Rhystic Study is going to draw 500 cards and then we lose. Um, so, you know, this, you really want to be deciding, you know, am I just trying to shut this down early? Am I trying to get other people to spend as many resources as possible? Um, all of these factors influence when you want to be playing your cards. Yeah, another another aspect of that too could be timing. You know, I mean, you're talking about a Rhystic study, but if there's a Remora, right, it could be um, you're trying to time going for a big spell that like a big value engine push for a win until someone is like timed out of their Remora, right? That can be something that you're you're waiting for, or wait until someone else decides that they want to remove a Rhystic study or Remora because you know they're they're scared of the value it's going to generate as well. So just picking your moment um, for your own kind of proactive stuff as well. Yeah. Um, or even just waiting, like, even uh, on a shorter time scale, um, like, potentially waiting uh, for, like, the fish player to get tapped out by somebody else trying to interact or, like, yeah. trying to, like, police somebody else and, and then, like, going for it once they don't have the resources to stop you with most of the draws. Um, and then, yeah, sort of moving on to um, sequencing. Sequencing uh, here, really what we're talking about is... Um, if you have, say you have, like, multiple uh, avenues to either interact or just, like, do something on a stack in a specific situation, um, really, like, heavily considering um, which one of those things that you're going to do first um, in that situation and what the benefits are. So this is, like, a lot of the time you also come up with, like, if you have it, like if I have a Dispel and a Flusterstorm in my hand uh, and there's, uh, like, an Adnaz being put on the stack, which one of those do I use first? Um, do I want to cluster storm and like hard counter it potentially without my opponent having any ability to interact? Do I want to like fire off a dispel and potentially bait more interaction out of uh, somebody before like saving the fluster storm for something else? Um, just paying attention to like even if it seems like the difference between two pieces of interaction or just like two two game plans in general. Um, say you're like you have an option to like either fire off a removal spell or like tainted pack for a counter spell or something like that. Um, just, like, actually, like, going through and considering, um, what the benefits are in not just this situation, but also, like, the benefits and drawbacks of, like, going forward, like, maybe, uh, I wouldn't normally cash the Flusterstorm in now, but I'm playing in a bod where I know there's gonna be, like, a rule of law coming down relatively soon, so I wanna, like, get in while the getting's good, um, and then, like, have the hard counter spell for later. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah, like, uh it's like you're playing against a cradle deck or something like some deck that can go big yeah. in mana and you're going to expect to pay for it and yeah lots of things you know you're i guess te technically those a lot of those are called like soft counters right using your yeah, soft but, counters but, but even even if we're talking about um like how broad a counter it is like if i want if i'm like thinking about swan song versus dispel um, yeah 
like I might want to save the swan song um, for much later if I think that there might be like an enchantment or uh, something coming down the pipe that I might need to counter that this dispel isn't going to be able to cover. Um, Absolutely. Or same thing. This it actually it's got it gets a lot more dynamic than that too. That these are simplistic cases, but um, even like a step up from that is like okay, like do I want to burn my uh, do I want to burn a force of negation now to be able to hold up uh, mana or do I want to um, like use my mana and my card immediately and then like maybe lock myself out of this force negation until later because that might have been my, the only blue card in my hand yeah it can also be just not even deciding what kind of counterspell it could be counterspell versus removal right like yeah, do i need to exactly. counter this um seedborn muse you know right now or can i remove it you know or like you know can i remove yeah. it next turn how long can i let this sit you know that even that that, that stuff can factor in as well um because Creature counters are uh, very, very valuable, especially for, for things like between, uh, yeah. uh, Grand Abolisher, <laughs> Ranger Captain. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's kind of like, these are the broad categories. Yeah, timing and sequencing, and everything that we're going to talk about from now on in can kind of be placed into either one category or the other, or is like a mix of both. Um, and these ones we're kind of just going to loosely bounce between as the discussion flows on. So... Um, yeah, let's just talk about no particular order table position. Yeah, just get going. I mean, table, I feel like table position is like one of the ones that like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it's like one of the ones that is not initially obvious when you, um, start playing or like start getting in, but is like an immediate light switch moment for a lot of people. Um, like once they realize like how much of a, how much of an impact it has on uh, on like situations like depending on who is actually turn player and who has last priority like not even um not even like shuffling people but even like who is last in priority at this exact moment in this turn cycle or in it on this specific turn uh can matter like huge amounts yeah i mean not not even just priority as well but uh you know available mana often you know yep. I, I play against yep. uh when I was playing Baral a lot, you know, playing against Keegan, he'd be like, "Man, I hate sitting, hate sitting right next to you, like directly, uh, directly after you. Like it's just, it's yep. so, so irritating to be yep. your last in priority, and also you just like untapped all of your mana and resources. So yeah, yeah like exactly. table position influences a lot in your decision making process for sure. Um, and it's not even like, like even using that specific scenario as well as an example. Um, like a lot of the time, like you'll hear people say like yeah like i hate sitting directly next to the control deck because like they if i try to do like anything important there's no chance for me to have like baited them or like for them to have tapped down in mana before i got to do my thing uh but there's also like a ton of dynamicism to that as well like on other sides where it's like okay like i hate sitting like right before the control player untaps because they're incentivized to cash in their their interaction right before they untap and like they're they're incentivized to like just if i do anything moderately threatening that i might have been able to slip through otherwise because they need to hold up mana for later like now they can just be like okay i'm just gonna like snap off a counter on that uh on that like fairy artisan or like fairy banished mind or something just boils like, down to people not liking to play against control untap. players mostly you know <laughs> <laughs> i i wonder yeah. maybe maybe you could tell us a little bit <laughs> oh, <that> is... <laughs> uh it's so much fun um but yeah like so with table position you know let's we we're talking about you know all the, the ways it matters what are the tips and tricks that people need to know um 
So I'd say the first yeah, is that if you're first in priority after turn player, um, pass priority. Oh, like that should be your your first yeah. instinct should be to pass priority. Um, if if the downside typically the uh, if if the downside of like a spell in the stack resolving is that um, basically everybody except for the resolving player is going to be impacted negatively, like relatively the similar like a relatively similar amount, um, or like you know like just people lose the game because the spell is going to resolve. Um, that means that everybody sort of has incentive to like not let it happen, which means that if you're not the last person in uh in priority and the last person in priority like probably has a way to deal with said threat um you don't really need to use your stuff you could just sort of be like all right well i mean you're the last person to have any say on this so uh if you don't want to die or if you don't want to be put in like a massively losing position you're probably gonna have to go use your thing now yeah and then then it you kind of get into if they don't have something that's when you can get into kind of resetting priority. So, like, if someone's, like, a Thrasios player if, if, is the person who has last priority, that's often when you can just kind of pass things around and they're, they are, yeah. they're kind of forced to activate Thrasios and tap out to either. So this is especially good when you're the turn player, the after-turn player, right? So, you know, you're tapping out one someone else because they're activating Thrasios to dig deep, looking for a piece of interaction. Um, if they don't find it, you get priority back and you can interact if you really want to. Um, so there's a there there's a lot of stuff that feeds into this one as well. Yeah, like even if you're uh, most most play groups aren't going to um want to get involved in like one sixteen point four stuff, which is the mana like priority resetting, mana ability priority resetting. But this happens like more naturally a lot of the time. Again, like cracking fetches, yeah, so like cracking cracking fetches, casting a cantrip out of their out of your hand. Um, yeah, just like using whatever like random priority resetting thing that you have just to like give the person another shot to be like, well, I passed on the assumption that you had something, but since you don't, I guess I'll have to burn this now. Yeah. Which also, um, that that also, you can get into, like, really interesting political situations with that one, too, where it's like, yeah, I'm the last person in turn order, and I actually do have the counter spell, but instead I'm going to tap out to draw cards with Thrasios and <laughs> the table deal with it. <laughs> um, with, uh, and kind of with table position and, and, you know, passing party and these things, I think it kind of dovetails nicely with the aspect of cooperation and communication. Um, yeah. Because if you're... If you, it, this really is is dependent on who's who ca who has stakes in the spell resolving. If everyone is against it, right? If it's just turn player who wants the spell to resolve, and then everyone is against it because either it's a win attempt or it's an insane value engine, or maybe maybe even if it isn't just the turn player. Like you know, there's it's like a curse totem, um, and then there's it's you and someone else in the pot who are like really affected by this particular stacks piece. Um, talk and communicate, and you can cooperate with your. Um, fellow players for for the brief moment while this spell is on the stack you guys are on a team it's like it can be arch enemy yeah. right yeah. um which is one of the things that i think many people love about cdh is that constant dynamic shifting between allegiances and you know everyone's out for themselves but for you know brief briefly you guys can be allies so announcing also, intentions <laughs> um sharing information on on certain things and like i think one of the very useful um things is clarifying interaction points so one of the the i think a key role is that if you're after turn player um you basically get to you priority you hold priority and it's not given until you pass it right it's not given to someone else until yeah. you pass it so you can use this as a uh you know you briefly get on your soapbox and you can say 
oh shit, this is a, this is, we're going to lose here. And this is exactly how we're going to lose. And you know, this is the only point we can interact. Yeah. I don't have it. Okay. Pass priority. Like, also known as the hold priority lecture where it's yeah. like, okay, I'm, I'm going to hold priority and you're going to sit here and listen to me explain exactly what's about to happen and what's going to go down. And, and the thing is, is it, we've seen it in major tournaments where, yep. um, because there is a lack of communication, like there's people just, not everyone understands how every deck works. There's a lot of decks in CDH. There's a lot of random niche combos and it can be very easy to take for granted that what you understand about other people's decks, everyone understands. And that that's just not true. One thing you need to be also cautious of is not uh, tipping off the, you, you need to assess the kind of uh, competence of the actual turn player, um, are they like make sure you're not announce giving them some kind of avenue to play around yeah, your your proposed interaction? Um, that feels great <laughs> as the turn player when you can milk the rest of the table for the information and just be like, oh, okay, somebody has a silence here. Let's see if I can like yeah. sequencing to work around the silence at the table. But that that is it feels great when you're in a position to like receive that information and work around it. You should almost you should try to almost never like give away that information like. Really, especially. Um, sometimes you do have to, like, sort of give it away a bit just to let the rest of the table know what's up. But, uh, yeah, you, you shouldn't you shouldn't be just, like, blatantly telling the table, like, oh, I can't deal with that. Yeah, um, yeah. But you, you can say things like, to, like, if we're going to interact, this is this is when we have to do it. And this is the kind of interaction that will work here. Um, yeah. Or, like, you need you can't let this resolve as soon as it resolves. Even if you have a removal spell, that's not good enough. If you have a removal spell, you can actually use it here, but you need to point it at this, right? You need to yeah. point it at the Magda instead of letting the Clock of Omens resolve or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, announcing intentions, um, when to work together, uh, pretty much covered. Sharing information. Yeah, this is... Okay, sharing information, I think, is one where it can get... Um, I see because sometimes it's like I, and I've gotten into games I'm sure you guys have as well where you're you're playing with someone and everyone's trying to be a bit cagey about what they have exactly the exact type of interaction they have yeah. and then you're like god we're we're kind of going back and forth about this let's just drop what do you have like what do you have I can tell you if this is the prop, proper way to interact or if you don't know when to interact don't you know, there's I don't think you need to be super cagey about it right like just be like, I got this. Please just help me use this yeah, spell I mean, on it, how to stop it. Like, and because sometimes if you it coordinate, on how lost you are. But if it's like a relatively complex situation where like there, like a lot of contextual stuff is going to matter. Yeah, there's a certain point at which you can just be like, okay, this is this is the piece of interaction I have. When do I use it? Yeah, and and, and sometimes it can be a, and and there's more ones like more simple forms of communication where it's be like uh, I can't actually counter this, but I can back you up or something like that, right? Like yeah, those yeah. those are those are kind of more clear. Um, but certain certain times, if it's like you need to kind of get enough storm for a fluster or or you know you have a creature counter and you know someone doesn't like you need to kind of coordinate to um, ensure that you're sequencing things and in, in the most um effective way to stop your opponent then you can kind of be more liberal with your information sharing but uh yeah don't that, that I, I think sense. i think you just need to not have like a hard fast rule against information sharing and you know know when it's appropriate to share to share yes yeah that being said though uh, i will say we actually had an example of this uh in a game that i think we were all in um a week ago a couple, couple of a uh, few days ago a couple of weeks ago um where 
I, I would be aware that, like, you should be willing to share the information when it's necessary and, like, when, when you need to, like, not die. But also, you should be aware of the questions that you're asking to extract some of that information or, like, try to extract that information from the rest of the table as well and what that gives up about your position. Um, the one that I'm thinking about here is that there was the, a... Like, but wasn't your read wrong? Didn't he, didn't he not have that interaction that yeah, he thought he, he had? Still, he still had the interaction. But it was a different the, piece the, of interaction. The point is, sure, but it was a piece of interaction. Um, sure. Which, basically, the, the point being that, like, uh, we, we were playing in a game where um, somebody wanted to, like, basically clarify game state just to get a general idea of uh, uh, what uh, I, I, I think I was trying to resolve some game-winning spell, um, and they just wanted to get a general idea of what I was working with, and one of the questions they asked, and it was a very specific question, which was uh, how much mana do you have right now? Um, which, in response to a game-winning spell, seems innocuous enough, uh, but in a lot of situations can be a tip-off point of, oh, you have interaction. Because you wouldn't be asking me exactly how much mana I had unless, like, you were looking for, like, axes to interact here. Um, but just, I... Anyway, that that's an example, but I would just say, like, try to... Try to be aware of um, what you're giving up by asking for specific situ or like sp for by asking for specific information in specific ways, and if you can like just rework the way that you're like trying to acquire that information to not give up. But sometimes it can actually be used to your advantage to yes. falsely telegraph signals yes. to your opponents. <laughs> yes. I, any, yeah. Anytime, anytime I say, anytime we're talking about like specifically information sharing and stuff, you have to always be aware that like the the Yomi levels go deep. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Just, just don't don't be doing things unintentionally. Right. The yes. the whole the whole thing is you should only be revealing information when you want to reveal information. Um, and you know sometimes that can be you know you're revealing information even if it's not a bluff to send some kind of signal it's just to kind of build confidence so that when you do have to sell the bluff then you know it is gonna stick but you know just be very deliberate with how you're um what you're giving away how you phrase things on what questions you asked etc okay morgan we me and reed were talking a lot for this last one you pick <laughs> a point from <laughs> from pull, pull a point out of the hat and uh take it away we've actually just uh uh, all right, I think into the mat role now. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think one of the big uh, things that people often uh, often mess up is uh, in terms of sequencing, uh, playing your cards in the right order for your goal. So we alluded to this earlier. Um, one of the big, you know, one the the most obvious card I think with this is Flusterstorm, where um, Flusterstorm. I mean. In a world with both Veil and uh, and Mindbreak Trap seeing heavy play, it's not as sure a thing as it once was, but most of the time, Flusterstorm says no, right? Like, yeah. it's just hard yeah. to beat with interaction. Just um, traditional, yeah. So, you know, if you are looking at your hand and you see, like, I have Dispel, Swan Song, and Flusterstorm, and I have mana for all three of these, um, it's, uh, you know... The order you play them in uh, really is dependent on what you're trying to do, right? Um, because if you're trying to, say, draw out a lot of interaction, you want people to keep going, you might start with something softer, like uh, you start with the, the Swan Song that, you know, you're expecting to eat, like, a misstep or a pyroblast or whatever, and then 
um, maybe you think, okay, I'll try that, and then, you know, maybe somebody else will back me up on on the pyroblast, like, they'll counter the pyroblast, or they'll swat it or something, um, and I get to hold my Flusterstorm, um, and, you know, that's great, you got to draw out another piece of interaction, hooray. Um, sometimes, though, if you're, if you're, like, worried about, say, somebody's wrist extended your fish being fed, you might just go, like, I want to shut this down right now, so I'm just going to lead with my Flusterstorm. Um, there's also similar things that can happen with stuff like Silence uh, and Veil of Summer, like, using them, yep. uh, offense, <laughs> the old offense-defense question, using them on your opponent's turn when you're not Dis intending to win, disruptively. let's say. Disruptively. <laughs> sure. yeah. But, like, not, is not Veil of Summer ever disruptive? Anyways, using <laughs> them, using them with, when you are intending to be disruptive, um, is also, like, you know, there can be times when, like, leading on them is excellent if you just, again, want to shut things down, or holding them, first of all, because obviously they're very strong on your turn when you're going for wins, um, but also holding them to try and get people to commit, um, and I think, uh, a, another huge, <laughs> actually, eh, maybe this goes better in another category, but one thing that I just want to say before I forget is, um, an, uh, if you are planning on, like, let's say someone casts an ad nauseum, and they've cast a bunch of rituals and stuff, and they have, like, a couple mana, but not nearly enough to pay for your Flusterstorm, um, if you're just gonna Flusterstorm it, you should respond to Ristic Study Triggers to give people the option to pay when they realize they don't, like, if their their planned turn isn't gonna happen, then they can spend their mana to pay for Ristic Study Triggers, and, uh, that's a that's a thing that uh, I think people often they just get in the habit of like, oh when when there's an Adnos on the stack I'm gonna let like the Ristic study triggers resolve to try and find more interaction. But if you're confident, um, it can actually be better to uh, to try and deny draw or to give your opponents the opportunity to deny each other draws by shutting them down earlier. Yeah, I'm honestly I I know that's an area that I can improve on a lot. That's one. That's one where I, I definitely don't uh, don't consider that enough. But yeah, it's it's super relevant. Um, and yeah, and the other thing with that is also to remind, like, if you make that play so that like people can do certain things to shut down like risk study draws or whatever, you should remind them of the fact that that's what you're doing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> communication again. <laughs> it's very it's very easy yeah. to sort of like outthink yourself and just be like, mm, I'm gonna make this genius play so that I can like scrounge percentage points. And the rest of the table is just like, yeah, all right, whatever, draw. I'll just, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, definitely, <laughs> yeah. Being clear about your intentions is, uh, is yeah. a powerful tool. I heard of cast. Okay, Reed, do you want to pick pick the next one? Uh, yeah, sure. So I think uh, a big one uh, in general here is uh, that I think is probably like needs to be worked on even more and i like even i like even i no like i i'm not good at this uh i'm not sure that anybody on this podcast is like well i would say like is like objectively good at this either um is sort of like uh recognizing uh when you need to stop fighting even when you have resources left to spend i'm not terrible uh, at this but i definitely yeah, could be better I, yeah i i wouldn't say any of us are like 
terrible at this, but I, I, I think, like, we all probably, I, and I'm not sure that I've ever actually, like, seen somebody who I, I would, like, mentally note as, like, oh, wow, you're, like, really good at evaluating this stuff. Because um, I think it's just, like, first of all, it's, like, hard to have it come up enough. It comes up, like, so hard to evaluate because you just don't know in the moment what also, they have in hand. Yeah, yeah. that too. Um, but so this is, uh, this is sort of talking about, like, um, if somebody, typically it's, it's harder, it's also harder to explain in general because it um, requires uh, certain game states and it also, like, you have to explain it with the context of um, it's you and another person fighting, but the reason why you would stop fighting typically isn't the person that you're fighting with. It's the game state and the potential game actions of the rest of the table after this fight happens. Things fall um, out of balance, yeah. Yeah. So typically uh, the situations that you'll see this happen in is... Uh, you don't want like a big value engine that isn't immediately going to end the game, uh, but is like coming down and you would prefer to not be in play. You don't want it to resolve. So somebody casts a heuristic study um, and you have a bunch to fight over this with. I have this force of negation, a swan song, a dispel. Like I have all, all this stuff banked up, ready to go and enough mana to cast most of it. Um, but when you're, but if the, you, you know, you fire off your swan song at the, uh, at the rustic study, and your opponent comes back with a, a dispel and you're like, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll fire off this force negation to try to get this rustic study like gone. And then your that opponent fires back again with another, uh, counter spell. Um, suddenly you're in a position where I'm looking at this rustic study. This person's now spending the interaction on me. So they're tapping pretty low and I'm, are not guaranteed to continue having interaction after this point. Um. If I, like, fire off this last piece of interaction to, like, try to get the Rhystic study to not resolve, um, and then they either fight back and have it resolve, or just let it get countered and then pass the turn without doing something impactful, um, the rest of the table has, like, a real opening now. We, we went from, like, five to six pieces of counter magic in people's hands down to, like, none, and... No, like, nobody won the game, there's just a risk study in play now, but we're passing to other people's turns who, like, potentially have some really dangerous stuff going on. Um, so sort of, like, evaluating in the moment, um, even if you went into that at the start being like, yeah, I'll, I'll spend, like, all this interaction to, um, to counter this risk study, like, having, having the awareness in the moment to be like, I'm not sure that I should spend this, like, last piece of counter magic. Um, or, like, this last piece of interaction, because I, I think I might need this one, and I'm not sure that it's worth, like, not having this thing in play. Um, so, yeah, I want to add on to that as well, um, because it this kind of evaluation on, you know, not falling for the sunk cost fallacy, when to let go, these, this also applies to the player who's playing something like Rhystic Study. Yeah. Right? Like, you might need to just let your Rhystic Study get countered. Or, um, one thing that's, you know, because both players are, like, they don't want to be the one who has to be responsible, right? Yep. The player who's casting the Rhystic Study wants to be the one who ends resolving the Rhystic Study and the other player is being the one who's being responsible holding up the counter magic for the next player. And then, you know, obviously it wants to swap depending on who you are. Um, what this can introduce is actually a great opportunity for politicking um, and making deals. So um, it could be something like, and I've done this before with Seedborn Muses, where it's like, okay, I'm going to resolve the Seedborn Muse. I'm going to use it to untap on my turn so I can um, you know, have Thrasius activations up to stop so-and-so. But I understand that you know, Seedborn Muse is a very, very scary threat. So what I've done before is I said, Look, I'll let me res let me stick with the Seedborn Muse, and I will only activate it for the next you know two turn cycles or this turn cycle uh, when you tell me I can activate it. 
right? Something as simple as that, where you're like, okay, I'm going to, you know, you're, I'm happy because I stuck a Seedborn Muse and I'm untapping. They're happy because, I mean, for, they get more time to pretend, like, it's like you're, you're delaying the kind of, you're kicking the can down the road on the Seedborn Muse. Yeah. We're like, we're going to make sure that no one else is going to sneak in here and get a win. And then I can, you know, potentially try and reassess and remove the Seedborn Muse later. It's a discussion we can come back to. Circle around on that one. Um, <laughs> I, God, if we just start using fucking corporate speech, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving. I'm done. Um, but yeah, so you know, it can be similar with Rhystic Study because you know it's a May, right? You can be like, well, I'll uh, I'll decline. I'll, I'll only draw one card this turn cycle, or or I won't draw off anything on your turn, right? You can, there's all different ways yeah. you can kind of try and negotiate these these deals but you know that this is an opportunity where those kinds of deals um i think are are, are plentiful it's actually interesting enough i feel like i'm sort of in the middle of a spectrum ish here i know we had a massive discussion pre-show about like deals and how they sort of suck in a lot of ways um but which i, I disagree still, with <laughs> i yeah i i also like i i i think my personal we're not going to get into this discussion but the point was um, I'm sort of of the opinion they're not great for the game, but I would I still like make deals in the course of play because they're still optimal a lot of the time, and like if, if you can wring percentage points out of them, then you probably should. Um, but I feel Morgan like you're probably the person in this call currently who is like the least likely to initiate like some long protracted like series of deals and commitments. Um, so I'm sort of like interested in your view here of like how often this happens or like sort of your like this like you're like problem solving decision making um for like sort of like cutting your losses on a lot of this stuff um i think i think like generally i uh i i am less likely to to go for deals as opposed to um like just trying to sort of point, it point out like i mean well the thing is is that uh you know <laughs> the more the more interaction that's spent uh the obviously the riskier it is that you're not getting an untap so yeah. um generally i'll try and like leverage uh you know doing certain things about the the game state one of the things i've i've done a couple of times is i've actually just floated like i've tapped in such a way that i just floated my blue mana and then cast like whatever it was ristic study and then so it's like right i've already well, i'm locked this. in now i'm not yeah. holding up interaction <laughs> yeah. for this person's turn yeah if you want to spend your interaction here uh like i mean i might as well use my interaction because i can't hold it up yeah uh, that's a very good move like a f you're forcing like, someone else's hand yeah and just very, like as like, a threat of essentially being like yeah. Either way, I'm not holding up interaction for the other person's turn, so uh, it's your call if if you want me to like, if you want to spend your interaction too. Yeah. Um, which and, is and just like things like that. I mean, it's a it's a it's a really it, I would not advise everyone do that in all instances because it's it's a you need to be it's a it's a risk right yeah. it, it is it's oh, a yeah, risk yeah sure. because but sometimes certain value tool. engines you need to calculate like you need to not just put yourself trying like you know browbeat your opponents into letting you resolve game-winning value engines because you what you need to do is you need to i mean this is kind of um you know and this could be a good uh maybe mini topic or something about the idea of like incremental value and things value engines that are like 
you know, not good enough to kind of win the game on the spot. And so, you know, people are more likely to let it resolve. And are those better than, you know, massive value engines that are must counters and get, you know, fought over a lot? You know, there's there's some debate there in the community. Um, so it, it needs to be in a position where you think that it's not, you're not forcing your opponent to be like, well, I have to counter this because it's so good. It's going to be so game winning if this resolves sort of, sort of situation. Um, that's the only caveat I would make there. Yeah, for sure. This is, this is, I think also I tend to subscribe to, uh, like for, for actions, at least I would say less is more a lot of the time where, um, like I'll, I'll talk a lot and try and like influence people's, threat perception or threat assessment um but in terms of like the sort of powerful political plays like uh like chain bullying people you know chain of vaporing somebody else to force them to sack a land to get rid of the the real threat or um you know forcing people to do like actions that they generally wouldn't want to do or, or taking big risks like that i think if you do them all the time they they sort of even even if people aren't consciously deciding that they're not going to work it, they are going to work less like people are just gonna you know it's like all right well i don't want you to have a heuristic study so i guess i'll just take the risk on this person untapping with whatever um and i think uh it also like there is sort of a there <laughs> There's, like, a weird novelty bonus to political plays where, like, when you do something strange that your opponents don't understand, they're like, what's what's that about? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. you can often yeah. get away with, like, some odd stuff or, like, uh, like sneaking things in or, or whatever. Um, sort of a, an example I had was uh, at, uh, at the last tournament in Buffalo, uh, which I just realized, oh, I guess this one won't be out before the next one i was like we should have announced that we're going to that but um yeah at the last tournament in buffalo i had a court of calling and i could get like razaketh or elishnorn and i was like there is absolutely we're, we're locked under trinosphere and winter orb um, but i have a cradle and i was like there's absolutely no way that if i just go like cool tap this cradle for a million mana and cast court of calling for eight that it's gonna resolve <laughs> uh but i was like but maybe uh if i cast it for two you know they'll let me do something and so i was like all right cool i'll cast it for two they're like two huh what are you getting there's a rule of law so i couldn't like thoracle tainted pack them or whatever they're like yeah whatever let's see it and i was like cool put in this fiend artisan untap activate get <laughs> yeah yeah but uh you know that is a trick that uh that only works a couple of times. Yeah. Or the the classic the classic like overpay. Um, yeah, exactly. that's another yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna finale for four. What are you for? Notion thief? Yeah, sure, great. Right, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the overpay for uh, the overpay for two is uh, like it keeps getting like more. What you have to overpay in order to like yeah. really <laughs> really exactly. get people. Yeah. Well, um, it's also you can't you can't go past a certain point because if you're paying like six, they're just like, okay, he's just going seaport news like this. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah, this yeah, isn't yeah. Smart. <laughs> like, well, um, cool. So, next one I think that's kind of worth talking about is triggers. Um, responding to triggers and missing triggers. Um, okay, so missed triggers. I think this is one that is uh. 
comes up a lot and people I mean comes up with Rhystic studies and remorse all the time because people forget to draw your long protracted games uh people cast spells and you know hey i cast this any responses no 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 okay cool resolves ah crap i missed my trigger um you know habits all of us whatever but um what's important to know is when you've actually missed a trigger because people think you might people tend to operate on the assumption that a trigger is missed when it's not um so with ristic study uh, and Remora, you do not have to announce the trigger until it is relevant to the game. Um, and and Morgan, you're you're more familiar with the rules, so if I say something stupid, just correct me. Um, but I think that's I think that's correct. Yeah, that's a that's a it's a lot of power you've given me there. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I'm just trying to make. If I say something wrong, exactly. it's Morgan's fault. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's wild because I'm more than happy to sign away my, uh, like, my scryfall privileges to just the uh, Morgan card database. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> card database, but the magic rules text might be a bit far for me personally. Um, but yeah, so something like I cast, you know, I've got a risk of studying my opponent cast a spell. Um, and you know, the, the, I, I, here, I've got a risk of studying play. I go to cast... Um, Archmage Emeritus. Someone goes to counter it. Um, I'm like, oh shit, and I really want to resolve my Archmage Emeritus. I'm going to counter back. Most people are like, ha, he missed his Ristic Study trigger. Idiot, he's not going to draw his card. Well, when, let's say, my counter spell does resolve, counters theirs, um, next element I can say, do you pay one for your spell? Like, I might have actually missed it at the time for it slipped my mind because I would have rather had an additional card um, to see before I, you know, committed my counterspell, but the trigger is still not missed um, because it, you know, it, it kind of occupies that space um, beyond it. Like, you could have just been responding to it. You don't have to announce it to say that it's on the stack and then respond on top of that. You can respond, and then when it would naturally come up, you can say, um, do you pay the one? Yeah, so I guess basically just to, to make sure we're phrasing it as clearly as possible. A trigger's only missed when you reach a game state after it would needed to have resolved without resolving it. So if the spell that triggers Ristic Study resolves without you saying anything about a Ristic Study trigger, you've missed that trigger. But as long as that spell is still in the stack, or even if it's been countered but the stack hasn't fully emptied... Uh, and everything that's been done could have been done in response to the trigger. It's assumed that everything was done in response to the trigger. Unless mm -hmm. explicitly stated. Otherwise. Unless explicitly stated otherwise, yes. Which is why it's important to be clear about exactly what you're doing. Um, and, uh, like, you you are not obligated to point out your opponent's triggers. But you, <laughs> but you can. Yeah. can. Yeah. Uh, and you definitely should sometimes. Uh, it's a fun it's a fun kind of um game when you're like right now depending on how the rest of the stack goes, I'm unsure whether or not I'm going to remind you of your trigger. Yeah. <laughs> you're like right now I don't want you to draw that card, but it might come up later that I do. Um like a couple of fish triggers in the stack here and we'll see if uh we'll Yeah. <laughs> um and yeah, so then in in general this, this also kind of just applies to um you know, putting your spells and timing your spells um, according to, and potentially sequencing your spells depending on triggers. And Morgan um, and Reed, I think both covered this a bit when they were talking about timing and sequencing of 
you know, not wanting to get a long um, counterspell battle and draw the Rhystic Study player a billion cards. So leading with a more hard counter, like, or a, a more, a harder to respond to counter like Flusterstorm. Um, and yeah, so, you know, and then also there's the aspect of replying to or responding to your opponent's um, Rhystic Study triggers so they're not seeing additional cards um, yep. so that it can help you kind of win a counter war that way. Um, I think most players other, are pretty good about that, though. I mean, going the other way as well, and going back into a bit of political talking as well, but uh, um, sort of leveraging that for your own gain as well, as if uh, you certainly know that you want somebody to miss a Rhystic Study trigger, um, like you don't want them to, rem uh, to remember it. Um, potentially, if there's, like, been a stack battle or whatever, and there might be some implied triggers still left in the stack, but you still want to respond. You can be like, oh, okay, so the stack is X, X, and X, right? Not including the risk exciting triggers. So it's like, oh, so the stack is a uh, the uh, the ad nause and then the uh, the dispel, right? That's the that's the stack. And if they confirm, you're like, oh, okay, great, then I'll respond with X thing. And now we've uh, we're we're at a point where like you can't have the triggers in the stack anymore. Yeah, sorry, I guess I should amend. I said if you reach a point where the trigger would needed to have been acknowledged, or if you can get someone to acknowledge the game state without the trigger, Yes. Which yeah. is what Reed is describing there. Yeah. Um, Peak scumbaggery, if I know. <laughs> I, I, I'm just saying, you get, you get your percentage points where you can get them. Yeah. <laughs> I, would say, I would say one other thing to be, like, really careful of, and this isn't so much around, like, missing triggers, but um, I, I think something that... <laughs> Reed can attest can lead to very hairy judge calls, um, but oh. also just will lead to a lot of judge calls. Is when there's multiple effects like Rhystic Studies and mm. Mystic Remoras, and a bunch of people are drawing cards as people continue to take actions. Um, you really do have to be very careful about making sure uh, priorities being passed appropriately, because um, like especially when people start. You know, when there's like spells that are more are like a two-two split on them resolving as opposed to a three-one, yeah. um, you know, it's often correct to like let the first Rhystic Study trigger resolve and then respond to the second one. And often I'll see the person whose trigger will resolve second asking, "Can I draw?" And yeah. like that just kind of shortcuts through the first person's trigger. Um, so just that's a situation that I think you should be careful in. I mean, there are opportunities to put into practice the things we've been describing earlier, but there are also just opportunities to get a lot of GRVs. So yeah, <laughs> it's definitely like I think uh, typically the stuff that we're talking about in terms of especially like contextualizing the missed trigger stuff specifically um, typically tends to happen on smaller scale stack wars with like a single rhystic study or like a single triggering thing uh effect in play typically once you get past a certain point in terms of complexity and like a lot of stuff happening it really just becomes worth it every time to like whenever a spell is cast or like a game action is taken you just uh, like straight up just like rebuild the stack from top to bottom or bottom to top and like re-okay it with everybody before going forward um, because a lot of the time, yeah, you can get into, like, really messy, like, oh, I thought they passed priority, so I did this, but I guess, like, one person hadn't passed priority on the thing yet, so this shouldn't have happened, except for, like, And it's, like, so hard to like, unwind. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, I mean, the, I, I'm not sure if I've told the story on the podcast, but, uh, <laughs> I will, because I think it's a, still a funny one of, like, getting into 
uh, an issue like that, except like even worse in a lot of ways of just like multiple multiple things had been implied to have happened, except for one person who hadn't explicitly passed priority on like a Rhystic study trigger and like two spells resolving, which had like had the actions for said spells taken, which included drawing cards and doing other stuff. Uh, before that person could, like, say, wait, no. Um, anyway, got to a point where after a very lengthy judge call, uh, plus escal escalation to the head judge, um, we got to a point where the head judge was just like, okay, this stack that is currently, like, have after, like, rearranging, like, clarifying some uh, stuff, was like, okay, this, this current stack is a legal stack, right? Yes? Okay. Resolve it. You're just playing on from here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We're not doing any rolling back. We're not doing any reordering. This is a legal stack. Resolve it. Keep playing. <laughs> Damn. So, point being, you don't want to get into that situation. Be very explicit about stacks when they get too complex. Um. Cool, cool. So, we've got only a couple more points left here. Um. I think... This one kind of ties into some of the things that we were touching on earlier, uh, which is leveraging known information. Um, so I'll I'll just kind of speak on this briefly, which is, you know, we were talking about when you're when you're after turn player, you know, passing priority to make make sure that the uh, the last player in priority has to use their kind of um, interaction first if if they have it, because we were talking about that in the context of just not knowing if they have it, but, you know, if it's a Thrasios player, they're going to have to reset priority anyway, blah, blah, blah. But knowing, you know, throughout the game, people, you know, drop hints about what kind of interaction they have through their pauses. They're like, mm, let me think about whether or not I want to interact here, or, you know, uh, they're, they're going to pause on certain spells, not on other ones. You can start to deduce what they have in hand, you know, also how they're, um, what they're, playing out in terms of value engines, how many cards they have in hand, you kind of estimate how many counterspells or pieces of interaction they might have. Lots of ways to um, get, like, little tidbits of information or, or good kind of ideas just to of, of what to kind of operate under, like certain assumptions to operate under. Um, but using that to your advantage is, I think, a, a really key piece in in getting better at navigating the stack. And that that's just going to be forcing people to um, use, not not accumulate an absurd amount of interaction into their hand. And like while you and everyone else depletes it, because when you, it tends to be like, you know, just if you're playing control and you, you kind of start to look the game this way, the player who has the most pieces of interaction gets to dictate the pace of the game a lot of the time. Right, they get to decide whether or not a spell is going to resolve. Um, they get to kind of it's not bully or browbeat, but like they get to uh, influence people um, about whether or not they're even going to attempt to do something. You know, they someone's like, if you go to cast your commander, I am going to fight over it. Uh, if you go to cast his Rhystic study or Nas, I am going to fight over it. You're going to lose. I can just I can turn my hand towards you. I can show you five different counter spells and I know you can't, you know, interact here so just don't do it. Like, you know, the player who has all that interaction has all the most tools at their disposal. So, trying to maintain that balance by forcing other players to use their interaction is is a super important aspect of the game. Anything to add to that? Yeah, if you uh Cool. Um, so then the other point we had here was forcing opponent actions, which is kind of very similar. Um, 
which leaves yeah, but also like intersects oh. with uh like forcing opponent actions also like intersects with um table positioning and uh like ordering of where people are in priority and et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, yeah so you you can you can like it, it a lot of it is just in the abstract just like setting up situations where you can incentivize your opponents to act before you do um in like ways that are uh beneficial to you yeah and the um the last point we have here is instant itis which i think typically isn't brought up in this sort of context of like stack interaction um it tends to be more for kind of proactive spells like something like a vampiric tutor yeah um, using it for you to bring it up yeah yeah <laughs> using it i didn't even add this point but i'll talk about it gladly um yeah so like you know the, the typical instantitis is uh casting a vamp tutor uh in the end step before your turn giving your opponents you know someone plays um fetch pass uh okay in step before my turn um tap vampiric tutor they're like okay crack fetch go get buy you dark ritual op agent and you've screwed yourself for no reason because you would have had the opportunity to just vamp tutor on your turn and you know it, it depends on if what you're going to vamp tutor for changes depending on what you're going to see from your opponents but if it's just going to be like a crypt either way there's no real advantage to getting your opponents to see extra cards maybe they draw a misstep um letting them you know hold up interaction for like op agents and stuff so that's the kind of core idea of instantitis but in the context of um you know stack battles and things what i would say is it can be about like timing your removal would be a good example yeah i was about to say like i think removal is really where this mostly applies is um like not just like a lot of the time it is going to be correct to wait until the end step right before you untap to like fire off removal at something but like you have, you have to be aware of a lot of the time when it's not like you're not waiting to the last possible moment um to use removal um and this even applies in between like on the spectrum between main phase on your turn empty stack using removal and using it in the end step directly before you untap um a lot of time you'll see stuff like this where uh people will just like either remove a ristic study immediately um or just like wait forever until it's like okay this is becoming way too much of an issue i'm gonna remove it um a lot of the time what you can actually do is uh like have a rustic study just like be in play um and sort of use it especially if you know that people are going to be um going to be like relatively conservative around it or responsible around a rustic study or a fish or just like something in general like that or an archivist of Ogma, um that you can sort of like wait on removal just a bit to sort of make those people play more conservatively around that piece and then right before you th- you like know or think that some stack battle is going to happen or like people need to crack a bunch of fetches to uh get their like get their mana rolling or do whatever then right at that moment you point a removal spell at the brisk study or the archivist or etc yeah i'm Um, i think i think just a really good example is if you're player a uh, player B has a turn, player C is the one with the Rhystic Study, instead of just firing off, killing the Rhystic Study in your turn, just waiting until player B's end step. Yeah. Right? Like, that. that's the last... You, you, it stops player B, gives them the opportunity to use any removal spells they might have had on it, if that's something they were going to do, and then... But then you're not letting player C, the player with the Rhystic Study, untap, have access to more uh, mana and cards to potentially defend it. Right? Yeah. Um, that another, sort of thing. Another good one, another good one is to um, remove you're like removing the rhystic study like or or similar thing uh 
right before you know, like, a big stack war is gonna happen. Yeah. Like, if someone controls a Rhystic Study and casts an Adnaz, telling everyone else, hey, ha hold off, before we start fighting over this Adnaz, like, let me kill this Rhystic Study. Yeah, and then, yeah. And then we can fight, so they're not just getting gassed up the whole time. Um, is, uh, is, is often a good one. Cool. Um... Any last-minute points anyone wants to make about uh, tips and tricks for navigating the stack before we uh, move on? Uh, yeah, it's just I think I think honestly a lot of this stuff is uh, I mean it's it's knowing about this like having the prerequisite knowledge for a lot of the stuff and just like how stacks function and like the specificities of like all the different ways that priority works and the incentives and what you can like what usually ends up happening in a lot of situations um but once you have that uh, a lot of the actual execution on this stuff is just not getting complacent and not like autopiloting through a lot of stack stuff and just like every every time there's some weird thing happening uh with spells in response to spells or triggers happening and then spells on top of those or whatever um just reevaluate the game state as is uh without like doing any as as much mental shortcutting as possible and just actually think through what is going to happen and what needs to happen from your end in order to navigate it uh, like correctly. Yeah, and if you if you easily... think through this stuff enough, it does become second nature and you can yeah, but... more or less autopilot through some things because you've built in these good habits. But, but even, yeah. But even then you sh you should never be fully relying For on sure. those habits. Like the the good habit that you should have is to critically think about the situations that you need to spend. Yeah, removal. the the now, more time now, you spend like thinking the, about this stuff, like in building in the habits, it just means that you get more time. It it it, it monopolizes less of your thinking time. It, exactly. Ideally, that, you should be thinking yeah. every possible second you can. Yeah. But you don't want to have to. You know, once once you've thought spend about something enough times, yeah. exactly, you can kind of you don't shortcut spend, some of that. Yeah, you don't want to spend all of your processing power. Like you, you want to basically practice it to get it to a point where you can, where doing that full evaluation or like reasonably full evaluation of the game state just takes less time, and you can just like shortcut that evaluation. But you don't want to be shortcutting past that evaluation. For sure, evaluation. for sure. You you always want to be doing like a base level. Okay, set ground rules. What do I need to do here? Cool, got that. Great, let's go. Uh, but you don't want to be skipping past that step almost ever. Cool. Morgan, any uh, final words or forever hold your peace? No, I think uh, I think we've uh, pretty, pretty thoroughly covered this topic. Cool. Well, that yeah, means that we can move on to everyone's favorite segment. You're going to have to definitely mess with the levels on that. I mean, it's, it's, it's the return. It's been a... Get checked. Just dial up the compressor a little bit. Get checked. Ooh. Okay. So... Gut Check Today is brought to you by... I've been thinking a lot about ChatGPT lately. Um, <laughs> we uh, also had tell. like six months to... to yes. Yeah, so. Uh, so my gut check is... How long do you think... And just like literally from the get, time-wise... Is it going to take until ChatGPT can make a CDH deck... For a newly spoiled commander... That's at least 80% as good as what an experienced brewer could make? Okay, what is as good? Give us a give us. It's, a, it's subjective. Here. I said eighty percent is good. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm saying like as good. What is eighty percent as good? Yeah, it's 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 right. using it's objective metrics, but it's subjective, right? Like I don't know. <laughs> All right, sure. Yeah, yeah. Like I was gonna say, I you know, 
probably something it's not just like 80 80 cards of what the 80 card overlap and then 20 cards of like random jet Jet, yeah, yeah, like junk like, right mean, like do you mean like a fully legal deck for said commander like no 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 no. yeah like better than that like it's like a okay, good fine. deck yeah, yeah, yeah. five years of yeah i uh new commander okay uh <laughs> i uh, one more qualifier does it like are we just giving it the name of the commander or are we giving it like here's the commander give me a deck for it like here's you the can you you could you put in the you put in the characteristics you give it you give it the card text okay. yeah um in that case probably like three years like two to three years if they actually do start training gpt5 at any point yeah that's that's kind of where if i'm at I, I was thinking like they, if they're not training GPT five, then like however long it takes for somebody to catch up. Yeah, they're they're not training GPT five currently, is my understanding. Um, but they are still doing things to improve GPT four, and obviously there's like plugins and extensions, and people are working on like different API, whatever. It's like people are, are doing a lot of work on it, and it's and the field is obviously expanding. So it might not even be Chat GPT. Maybe I should have amended it to just some AI. But this is this is yeah. like. Yeah, it's like not impressive to me. I don't know. Yeah, I, it's it's. I think I think I think it was Neil Gaiman who put it perfectly, which is ChatGPT doesn't give you information; it gives you information-shaped sentences. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like people are buying into like like a a bunch of the stuff that I've read has just been like, well, first of it, a bunch of it has just been wrong. Um, yeah. Where, but like a bunch of it has actually just been incoherent. Like it doesn't even. It's not even just like, oh, it, it made like a minor mistake. It's like, it just doesn't have any clue what the question is. It's just like mashing keywords related to the question into... Oh, it's a, more advanced a, than that, stuff. though. Like, I think no, no, it's... On some things. I'm not saying all yeah. the time. Well, I mean, it, it will can, just make it up... Sh it makes shit up like at a... But like, the, right. the, the other so, thing like, is crazy is that it doesn't like... They're, they're, so it, it obviously makes things up, but it's... The things where it does hit, it like, it hits really... Stupendously, apparently, like a lot of it is like in diagnostics. I, I saw this one Twitter Twitter thread about this um, this guy's dog had like some kind of anemia, and they took it to a vet, and the vet got the wrong diagnosis or or whatever, and they were doing blood work on it, and the, he just like typed in the blood work into his uh, into ChatGPT and like described the symptoms, and it gave a differential diagnosis that he took to another vet, and they're like, yeah, that's, that seems right, and uh, ended up curing the dog. So I think like that is a bit more than just like no but but that's like that's a a data set search like very cleanly right like yeah. that's that's what computers are excellent no it, but it's not just a data set search because it, it's obviously the system is built on you know it's being it's a it's the it's a language model right it's not it, it's also taking in the natural language processing of what they're saying and describing the symptoms and things like that and kind of factoring that in not just like the pure blood work right sure. um but but like again these are no i know it's not it's not like crazy like out there yet but the, the thing is are, is what 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 i think is impressive is that not that we're there yet but that we're very clearly way way closer to that uh than we were we're not it's just that this is publicly available like this this technology has existed no sure 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 um but yeah, I, I think the fact that it's be, it is publicly available is, uh, and that there's now a massive rush for the uh, for the finish line, or to be like the 
to 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 win win the uh, AI race and uh, you know be the company that has like the leading product on that. I think it's just going to accelerate things even further. So yeah, very exciting. I I, I yeah. So I I follow in roughly with with Reed at I think like three ish years, um, which is uh, wild. Okay. Cool. Um, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you guys want to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact us on Twitter at Into the North Pod via our email, Into the North Podcast at gmail.com, or on our Discord server, the invite link for which can be found in the description for this episode. An extra special thanks to all of our patrons who help cover the expenses for our show and allow us to work towards improving the quality of the podcast. If you too would like to become a patron, we are at patreon.com slash Into North Podcast. Thank you, as always, to the band Vox Cadre for our lovely podcast music, and to Nate Slover for our equally lovely podcast logo. Next episode will be out in two weeks. Until then, see ya.